This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job, or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast, hosted by founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper. Hi, I'm Wyatt McPherson. I produce this show, and this week we have got Ken Braggett, the founder and COO of True North Valve Solutions, here to talk about his company, but mainly the impact that he himself, as an Indigenous business leader, is currently having and plans to increase as Canada's only Indigenous-owned company providing complete valve solutions. It's an amazing and honestly inspirational conversation that anyone both in this industry and out should hear. So let's get on to the episode. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. I'm Don Cooper, your host, and on in the background, we have the wonderful Mr. Wyatt McPherson on producing the show. Today, I've got my pal, Ken Braggett, with True North, and we're going to be talking about Ken and his vision in a valve business that has a passion for giving back with Aboriginal and Indigenous employment. We're going to talk about Ken's history and his company. I think it's a really interesting and innovative story that I think is important in today's times. Ken, how's it going, my friend? Good, Don. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. I'm loving the uh, the uh, the uh, pink and I'm not sure if that's pink or what kind of color is that shirt, buddy? It, it, it shows that you have a lot of confidence in your masculinity right there. Everybody says it's pink, but like it's a fiery red. Oh, I, I was going to go real deep and looking for a color and say, is that fuchsia? <laughs> I don't even know what fuchsia is. Uh, I don't know what it is either, but I think you're wearing it. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I, um, I try to be fashion forward, but uh, it, it gets confusing some days. So how's things and how's business in COVID? Um, business is fantastic. Personal life, fantastic. Uh, you know, everybody I tell, I, I, I kind of don't try to, to talk too much about it because I, you know, I hear companies that are minus 60 in sales, minus 70 in sales, laying off people. You know, when COVID started, I sat the team down and I said, you know, once again, when True North started, I sat them down that time. But once again, when, when COVID started, I said, we will get through this if we are willing to outwork everyone else. Leave the, leave the strategic maneuvers to me. I will not let you down. We're going to do the right things and we're going to work harder than anybody else. And we have seen a, uh, we will see this year a plus 45 uh, increase in revenue. That's fantastic, my friend. We, we hired, we've hired, we've hired four people since March to add to the yep. team. Um, so, you know, what? we're, we're blessed and, 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 and I'm, I'm having the time of my life and, you know, I started True North when there was an NDP uh, provincial and a federal uh, liberal majority. People thought I was nuts then, but <laughs> you know, hard work. It's just, on, it's, it's been a lot of hard work, but it's been a lot of fun. Well, you know, and I think in today with all that stuff, with the, the negative news, the media news and all that sort of spin that doesn't make people smile and happy, I actually think it's, I think it's important for people to sell success, to, to tell your success story, to talk about growth, you know, to talk about the fact that you've been hiring people. I mean, people need more good news. 
Yeah, you know that. Yeah, it's kind of why I started a segment on LinkedIn called Friday Feels, where I would kind of try to highlight something really you know special and, and positive that that's going on in the industry or going on at True North, um, because I, I saw the need for that. Because yeah, everywhere you go, you know, I've never seen Canada more divided, uh, you know, left and right. You can't you can't even have a constructive conversation with anybody anymore without without yeah. people labeling. How are we going to get anywhere if we can't even we can't even explore ideas, right? Yeah, I, so. I agree. Uh, I don't know what the solution is because I think there are there are divisive forces in the leadership uh, of the comp uh, of the country that are creating that even that wider rift. But I, I'm not going to get into the you know the the politics or any of that because there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, right. That's for other people. That's another. That's a battle for other people to fight. But you know. We're in the trenches trying to keep people working and trying to be prosperous, right? 100%. Yeah. So, Ken, um, you have this business, True North. Tell me what that is. Well, you know, I, I, when people ask me that, I struggle with it because it, to me, it's not a business. It, it, it's a way of life and it's a family. And there's a vision that, that we created together. Um, you know, there was eight of us in, in my previous a business that left there because you know there's more there's more to life than just waking up in the morning feeling like you have to go to work and working with those people from eight to five maybe you like some of them maybe you don't and you leave and you never talk to them on the weekends or after work well I you know you spend more work you spend more time at work than you do with your family if, if, yep. if you really want to be successful in, in this world you need to do that and it's, it's, it's not a fair, it's not a fair work-life balance at the very beginning, but that work-life balance becomes more, if you work hard, it becomes more life than work balance at the very end of your life. Um, so eight of us left um, a company that I owned 42% of and started True North. And, and we sat down with, with a vision of, you know, we want to be a complete valve solutions provider. Um, we looked at some, a lot of big gaps in the valve industry and we were very technically sound. We had a lot of good technical people and we thought, okay, let's build on this technical skills that we have. That was almost a hundred years combined and, and let's, let's find our place in the market. And, and we did. And that evolved into, um, you know, seven or eight really good technical divisions that we developed. And then we decided, why don't we do the easiest part of this whole valve equation and sell you the valve, right? So then we bolted on about $30 million worth of inventory and the sky's the limit, right? So we, are, we, we, we essentially are your complete valve solutions provider from anything you'll ever need to buy the valve to helping you to the end of that valve's life cycle with disposal and scrap. Uh, asset management of your surplus, technical expertise at the very beginning on what the right valve for the right process, um, all the way to where our guys will actually drive it out to your site to limit costs on logistics, limit potential damage from people who don't know how to care and handle valves. And um, that's what we've kind of done. And it's been, it's, there's nobody else like us. Plus we're the only indigenous valve company that I can find in all of North America. Right. Well, and I want to dive deeper into that because I think that's a really interesting and uh, inspiring story about what you're doing there. I mean, the valve business 
happens to be your niche that you found. And I think, you know, th th there's a great story there, but I think your why, your why in, in what you're doing is really what I, the message I want people to, to hear about. So, uh, Ken, you were adopted. Why don't we, I want to understand a little bit for our audience to understand about where your background started and then how you found um, this connection uh, with, uh, with the, the First Nations of Canada. Yeah, well, it's okay. Let's get personal. Um, Absolutely. This is, this, is, this is telling your story, my friend. Yeah, so um, when, I was, when I was two years old, um, my mother and my birth father um, split up, I guess, and I was adopted. I, didn't, I was unaware of this until I was 10 years old. On my 10th birthday, my, my new adopted father, uh, Braggett, Dennis Braggett, and my mom sat me down <coughs> sorry, and uh, said, oh, hey, by the way, you're not, you were not born Ken Braggett. You were born Kenneth Lewis Callahoo, and your father is, is a First Nations man that uh, you've never met, and, and we don't know where he is. And, okay, I'm 10 years old. I don't know how to digest this information, so I – all good. Um, when I was 18 years old, I found a box uh, at my at my now stepdad's business. So if you follow, I've got now three dads: birth father, adopted father, stepfather. Stepfather right. owns a valve manufacturing company, so I was working for valve his company. So I find this box in a storage room in his business, and it has information about my birth father, Farron Calhoun. And I, I start diving into this thing and. There's actually like a pay stub from Acme Scrap Metals. I, I pick up the phone and I call this Acme Scrap Metals because maybe I'm going to find my real dad. And the guy that answered, uh, I asked him who, who, if he knew Farron Callahoo and he, and he said a couple swear words to me and hang up the phone. I'm, obviously, it doesn't work anywhere. And um, so that was 18. When I was 28, I asked my mom. I'll just go, go back to that for a minute. So this, you called a guy at 18 because of a pay stub and – the response you got were some swear words. Did that? Did you get anywhere else with that, or was it just that one event? Just, just that one. Um, okay. Yeah. The the, the my, my my real father's former employer probably didn't like him, so he's sure. Okay. So you know, in my whole life I was told that that my real dad was a deadbeat and he wanted nothing to do with me. I never met him, and so that 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 kind of phone call was like, well, maybe my mom was right, you know. Right. Um, so then at 28, I started poking around again. I asked my mom about him and, and uh, no, he's a, he's a loser. I saved you from that life. And, you know, okay, so I, I respect my mom and uh, move on. Well, when now, I was, was this your, was this, sorry, was this your birth mom or your, or no, your my adopted birth, mom? My birth mom. I, I, my birth mom is still in my life. I, okay. Only, only my adopted, uh, my, only my birth father isn't. Okay. I got you. I got you. So 34, um, we're sitting on a patio at, at my family's cabin in, in Sycamus, BC. And my sister-in-law goes, have you ever looked him up, your, dad, your real dad? I said, no. You know, he's, he's a loser, blah, blah, blah. And uh, all through the power of Facebook, in two clicks, I find a picture of him. Oh, and yeah? I, find, I find a picture of him with his entire new family, his wife, and then these uh, uh, two sons and, and, and a daughter. And... And I'm like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, that's neat. But this guy doesn't know me. I'm not going to pick up the phone or Facebook the guy and go, hi, daddy, it's me. And he doesn't know me. I'm not going to ruin his life because maybe he hasn't told his, his family about me. 
And um, so I, I leave it alone. I get home from my holiday and now, but I'm fascinated now. Like I'm, I've, I've seen the man for 34 years. I've walked around this earth, not knowing who I was, was I, was I, my family have genetic heart disease? Was I Polish? Was I, I don't know. Um, so I get home from the holiday and I said, you know what? I still have that box I had when I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So I start rooting through this box and there's more than just a, a paste of from Acme scrap metals. There's, there's a, a document in there, which is a custody battle order from when I was two in 1984, when I was two years old. And I'm thinking, well, wait a second here. I never met this guy. Why is there a custody battle? And yeah. then, then there's a whole bunch of other documents. And then there's a restraining order. Hmm. And in that restraining order, my mother was six months pregnant with me. She filed a restraining order against my birth father. And in that, in that document, she says that, um, She's going to have an abortion next week with me, like wow. I, right? Yeah. And and I was like, I, I'm, you know, I'm in tears. I'm blown away because I'm opening up this box of uh, Pandora's box of emotion and, and my life and uh, my whole life's basically in this box. And so then in there, I find uh, another document with another lady who's not my mother and my birth father. So I Google that lady's name. Well, she had passed away a couple years ago and in her obituary lists two kids. Well, in the document in the box I found, which labeled her name was my birth father and this lady, she called him to court over child support payments. So one of these two kids I found in my obituary was my half brother or sister. Yep. So I reached mm-hmm. out on Facebook to the one, the, 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 the girl on that obituary and I asked her, can I ask you a question? She goes, yeah. I said, do you know Farron Callahoo? And she goes, yeah, that's my brother's dad. And I went, okay. So I called her and I said, you know, um, here's who I am. Here's how my connection might be to your brother and even to you. Uh, she goes, I'm going to get my brother to call you. So I hang up with her. I start driving into town. My phone rings an hour later and it's from Yellowknife. And I'm like, I don't know anybody from Yellowknife. So I pick up the phone and the voice on the other end, uh, Alan was, was, is his name. And he goes, Kenny. And I go, well, no, my, my name is Ken now. He goes, Kenny, like we've been looking for you for years. And I went, wow. What do you mean you've been looking for me for years? You know about me? He goes, yeah, I've seen pictures of you. I've heard stories of you. And I'm like, what the heck? None of this makes sense. And what I was told when I was growing up. Yeah. So, like literally 20 minutes later, an auntie calls me. She's bawling her eyes out. I, we need to meet. Where can we meet? So the next night we meet at the keg. We have about a six-hour dinner. And it just, yeah, I was a part of these people's lives forever. Or not forever, but since I was, you know, for two years. They were all at the hospital. I lived with a couple of them. I was one of the first grandchildren in the family. And, and this whole big history. And um, so very, you know, a lot of things going on. And... Um, then I find out how proud uh, a family they are with the, with the heritage of actually being connected to the Michel First Nations community outside of St. Albert. Um, very proud Mohawk Iroquois family. And actually I was, uh, uh, I was related to the chief, Michel Callahoo, uh, who was the chief of the Michel First Nations back in the early 1900s. And in 1956, they were kind of swindled into giving up their, their Indian rights and they enfranchised. And then the community 
is no longer recognized as an official First Nations by the federal government, but very, very proud people. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, you know, I look back at when I was in the Edmonton City Police and, and how we treat uh, our Indigenous people. Um, you know, there's a story that, that, I, that I tell and, and it, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's, it's powerful that, you know, so when I was in the police, I didn't know who I was still. I didn't know how ingrained I was with the Indigenous people and they're my people. And my, me, me and my partner, we drove a guy downtown headquarters and we put him in jail. On our way back south side, we're on 103, right by the, uh, there's a staffing, uh, a staffing company and then there's a register, cash register place. We're facing eastbound and he's driving and I'm sitting passenger. And he looks over to his left and there's a First Nations male half laying on the sidewalk, half laying on the street, passed out drunk. And he says, do you see that? I said, and I saw it, I saw it. I said, nope, turn right. So he turns right. And I'll look at, I'll think of that story for the rest of my life because, you know, I, I almost told myself when I found out who I was that I'm never going to turn right again. And I'm going to try to get as many people as I can to face this problem head on and not just throw money at it. We need to, we need to come together as a society and, and realize that, you know, here, here's our own, our own people and our own population who are, who didn't get to vote until 1960 is when the first nations were allowed to vote. So, you know, we, we've just thrown money at the problem. We've, we've haven't created opportunity and, and, and they're way behind. And I think, you know, I don't want to sell the most valves. I don't want to make the most money. I want to be known as the guy who changed hundreds of indigenous lives through opportunity, through employment, through education. And if, and, and that's what I want to be known for essentially. <clears throat> and it just turns wow. out that I'm really good at this whole valve thing. And that's how I'm going to fund this dream that I have. So, I want to unpack a couple of things you said there because that was yeah. that was we've never you've never told me that much detail before and yeah. I, and that was that was fantastic. It's um, I don't want to dive into the the back end. But clearly, you know, when, when there's a you know a custody dispute um, and, th and those things can be challenging. I, I I've gone through some of that with my own children and trying to make sure that I'm I'm uh, always trying to make sure that I'm a powerful influence and and a, a a factor in, in their lives and, and that, that takes a lot of work when it's uh, when you're not together as a as a united family yeah. um but you know the story that you were raised to and the story and then and the on the other story that you discovered are obviously some differences there in terms of how how you viewed the world yeah and um now you know how moms and dads explain these things to kids is generally about protecting the kid and also protecting themselves. Did you cut, you know, have, have you had a, a, a good, you know, clarity reconciliation with your mom to you know, kind of get alignment with what really happened and you're, you're happy with that and that relationship maintained? No, a hundred percent. You know, it's actually, so I, I, I did meet my real father. I reached out. I, I, I called him one night because um, I, I had, started talking to more of the family. He was actually the last one in the family that I talked to. Um, oh, wow. He had actually distanced himself from, from the Kalahu family 20, 30 years ago. And um, so I was told, nope, he knows about you. Give him a call. So I called him one night 
And I, I said, hey, my name is uh, Ken Bragg. He obviously didn't know that because, you know, back in the 80s, you could change a kid's name, move them two blocks away, and you never know, which actually happened. I, live a, I lived at one time a block away from one of my aunties. Wow. And, and so I, I said, well, uh, I, I referred to my mother's maiden name when he married her, and he, and he went silent. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? He's like, I haven't heard that name in forever. Um, but yes, this is me. I am, I am your real dad. And then we talked for half an hour and then we agreed to meet. And um, what a fantastic, nice guy. What, just, a, just an awesome human being. Um, you, know, he, 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 you know, he told me exactly what had happened in the beginning and I don't fault him. Do I fault him for never looking me up? Yeah, okay, sure. But my mom essentially created that, that barrier um, to use me as leverage to hurt him, which, you know, is a common tactic in, in, in some situations. Yeah. Um, but no, he, he's a fantastic human being. We have a relationship to this day. And me and my mother, um, we do not have a great relationship um, right now. And it, it's been like that for about six or seven years. But yeah. Is it because of this revelation or just other things in life? Other things. Um, she's battled yeah. with, with some things that, uh, you know, that... Uh, that I'm trying to help her with now to today. Sure. Uh, I've, I've essentially, you know, buried the hatchet with her and I'm trying to assist her, but um, she's got a long way to go, but you know, I'm, I'll, I'll be there for her where she needs it and where I can help her. So. So can you discover this whole revelation and your connection to the Aboriginal community and, and your roots, both culturally and, and, and genetically um, and you're like 34, 35, um, when I found that out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew, I, you, you know, you knew the fact when you were 10, but you really made the connection and, and got some deep understanding of it much later in life. So yeah. up before then you were raised in normal, well, normal, that's the wrong word in, in non-Aboriginal life. You didn't have a connection, you know, you didn't have any cultural ties or any insights into that part of the world and really you lived you lived on the other side of the fence of the disconnect and reconciliation 100 percent. yeah I, I like i i thought i was ukrainian we would have ukrainian dinners oh. i like, <laughs> I, I, literally, I had no idea who i was or where i came from for for 34 years well i but you didn't you didn't have a sense of i don't know who i am but you you had a sense that you were someone and, and you were actually had this other piece that you had no idea about exactly yeah i i think that's a really compelling story in 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 canada because the minute that you can make a connection with people and i mean most of the i mean one of the greatest challenges i think in in uh, having good reconciliation and not having a divide in, in Canada on this whole topic is there's a lack of understanding and connection, you know, between Aboriginal society and, 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 you know, Western, you know, society, you know, what, what, the, what the Aboriginal community might call colonial society, but, you know, the rest of us who are not Aboriginal in Canada don't have a connection and it's, and it's, it's, it's competitive. It's, it's, um, uh, oppositional, you know, the, the nature of it, it is, is very much in conflict. And I just think that that's compelling. I'll tell you, I, I as you know, I grew up in Newfoundland. Yep. And um, my whole life, you know, I, I didn't really have any connection 
with the Aboriginal community, including didn't even really have a connection that there was a conflict in society because there really were no um, uh, treaty disputes or Aboriginal communities that were in my region. I think, you know, there, there certainly are in uh, northern parts of Newfoundland and, and that, you know, it, with the Innu uh, in Labrador, but in Newfoundland, it really wasn't something that we saw in society. You'd hear about it once in a while um, on the news with, you know, I remember I remember some, uh, I think it was uh, Mohawk um, things going on in Quebec and when I was a kid where they were blocking highways and stuff in some disputes. But it was, a, it was a television thing from, you know, quite frankly, the mainland and it was really not a connection. But I was an army cadet. And when I was 15 and 16, uh, I, was, I was a pretty adventurous kid and I didn't want to do the normal stuff that army cadets did. So I always looked for the most adventurous summer camps that they could offer. And uh, in 1988, uh, I ended up in the Yukon uh, in Whitehorse and in Alaska in a cadet camp there. And that was one of the cadet camps that um, was a, was a cadet, a local cadet camp for all the Northern communities in Canada. So 50, 70% of the cadets there were all first nations kids. And so I, I got, I made a lot of friends there and that was, that was really connecting a bond with a lot of people. And, you know, I, 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 I still stay in contact with several of them to this day um, in, in Northern communities. Uh, and, and that was really my first experience. And I, and it was really important for me. The, the next year I went to Baffin Island and I was on an Arctic survival course. And again, we had some Aboriginal kids um, on that course, but it was mainly um, non-Aboriginal cadets for the most part, but we were embedded in an Inuit community in Pangertung, um, uh, Baffin Island. And we hunted and fished with, uh, with Aboriginal leaders. Uh, we hunted seals, we fished Arctic char, they taught us how to cook. We, we went to a, uh, a hunting lodge with the families and we cooked the foods that they ate. We, they, the, the women taught us how to make bannock. Uh, the women uh, taught us how to make moccasins. Um, and the men uh, taught us how to carve soapstone. And, you know, in my mom's house to this day, I've got these soapstone carvings I made of a seal and a polar bear in that community. And well, but that was um, that was a really great experience. The flip side, which was kind of a dichotomy in that town, was it was a uh, legally enforced dry town, and uh, you know that the when they didn't sell alcohol in that town, and the RCMP were there enforcing that, and I remember witnessing um, one incident where uh, a gentleman in the town got intoxicated somehow they would smuggle it in or whatever um and i remember seeing this chase where they were trying to arrest him and uh and i just thought it was like like there's, there's something a mismatch here in terms of uh what's going on and uh but those stories um i rem you know when i was in high school i i would you know in english class in high school how you would have to um uh, do some public speaking as part of write a speech and get in front of the class. Well, I always, I always, uh, 
uh, you know, a lot of kids in those days would write about, you know, world peace or, in, you know, in the late 80s, in the early 90s, it might have been um, apartheid or the Berlin Wall or, or AIDS research, or whatever. And people would write, you know, kids would do some research and write some speech about something they knew nothing about. And that was like, you know, you're standing in front of the classroom and you're reading cue cards and um, hoping that, you know, whatever research you did paid off. Um, I wrote about these experiences. I wrote about, and I, I wrote a speech about the similarities around the, um, the, the um, treatment of Aboriginal communities and how, you know, and connected it to how Newfoundland, Newfoundlanders might feel uh, looked down upon or separated from mainstream society as well as a, as a unique society. Um, and just connecting and just making that connection with how are we the same instead of how are we different? Uh, and I, I won, I won, uh, I won that, uh, the public speaking and it was, uh, but, and it was about, it was about Aboriginal rights. And uh, as a kid, I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I, uh, through those experiences, uh, when I thought about going to law school, I actually wanted to be an indigenous rights lawyer, believe it or not. Oh, cool. I, uh, I, 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 someone, someone along the way talked me out of becoming a lawyer, thank goodness. But, uh, but I just, you know, at, at my roots as a kid, I had these interesting experiences that gave me a different perspective. It, it, it made a connection because these people were my friends. I lived in their community. They taught me things and I saw the value in a way that I think media and government and law enforcement don't see. And I no. think it's really, it's really important. And I think that your story about discovering who you were and the fact that you were a police officer and, had, and probably had that view in some way because you didn't have a connection until you did is a really compelling argument for why we need to do things differently. Oh, 100%. Um, you know, I, let's talk about the police. And, and obviously, it's a very hot topic on what's going on now, especially in the United States. Um, with defund and, and the treatment of, you know, African-Americans down there. I look at when I was in the police and I was in uh, basic training for about 25 weeks. Out of those 25 weeks, I shot a gun thousands of times. I learned how to fight hundreds of times. I learned how to communicate and how to problem solve maybe a dozen times. But when I went to the street, all I did was problem solve and communicate. Right. I didn't, the police never taught, the police never put you through one, one day of Aboriginal awareness training on how to deal with personality management and yeah. historical behaviors. Um, you know, we have such an influx of, 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 it, of immigration into Canada, which, which is a good thing, but why are we not learning about their culture and what they're dealing with and, and where they grew up and where they came from? Because that would help us as police learn how to manage personalities and diffuse situations a little bit easier. So I, I, I love that I had that experience. I'll never regret going into the police because it structured me and it gave me the leadership skills, the problem solving skills. I'm way more methodical and but I'll never regret leaving the police of, because of what I'm able to do now is influence a whole bunch of people's lives. You know, in the police, there's a mandate and there's a vision and there's an objective. Um, 
where you think you'd be able to stay there and influence and change hundreds of people's lives, but it's not really that way. You know, it, it's not until a bunch of people in the private sector decide, you know what, let's make a change together. We're, there's hundreds, there's thousands of businesses in Alberta that if they take the opportunity employ a couple of our indigenous people each. Well, you know, last, last summer I hired uh, a, a four young men, three from Miccosu and one from Athabasca Cree First Nation. And I actually tell the story on my LinkedIn and you can find it on YouTube. It's called uh, uh, Chad Lewis True North. Chad Lewis came to me, 18 years old from a young male from Athabasca Cree First Nation. His job interview, Don, was like this. Mm-hmm. And I go, you know, Chad, what can I do? He was, I, I, want a, I want a job. I go, okay. I tried to ask him some questions. He wouldn't even look me in the face, didn't shake my hands. I didn't shake my hand, but I gave him a job because, you know what, I, I'm going to – I'm going to, I'm going to change you. I'm going to help you. And I asked them literally first day, what's your mechanical aptitude? I had to explain aptitude to him, which was fine. Um, and he, I, I won, I think. And I watched him for a little bit and I said, and I, and I'm, I agree. Like he's a one, like, like this is different. This opened my eyes into just, this isn't just get to work, put your boots on and go to work. Um, he needs training and he needs some education on just basic, simple skills. I could have laid out hundred tools on the table and said, find me a flathead screwdriver and he couldn't do it. So, you know, that opened my eyes. A year later, that kid, rock star. His, I asked him, I said, what are you now for mechanical aptitude? He goes, Ken, he looks me in the eyes, he goes, Ken, I think I'm a seven. And I'm like, I totally agree. Like that moment. So now Chad Lewis at 19 years old, I look ahead in the future. This kid can, can have a kid, have, let's say this, he has a child one day, he can change oil, he can change his ceiling fan, he can change lights, he can change, the, like he can change the brakes on his car. Like, I just gave this guy the skills to change his life, and now he's going to maybe change his kid, like, and that's going to go on and on, right? So imagine if yep. that happened thousands of times. Rather, and, and I actually asked Chad, I said, Chad, would you be at a seven if all I did was bring you here, put you in office? You sit and do nothing. Maybe you doodle and draw and play on your little PlayStation thing. But I give you a paycheck every two weeks. Would you be at a seven? He goes, no, I'd still be at a one. Well, there it is right there. This is not a problem that's going to be solved by just throwing money at things. Right? By, we, we need to figure out how to create opportunity for our own people. Well, and I'll tell you that. So I've got a, a similar perspective. And... I probably have a, a, a jaded perspective on, on just any time you get government programs throwing money at something, that's all they're doing. You know, all you ever hear the talk, government talking about is funding things, not effective things. Yeah. I think the reconciliation and, and creating opportunity is not going to come from funding. It's going to come from entrepreneurs who create opportunities to help people develop. Yep. To give them an opportunity and to give them mentorship, to give them coaching, to give them um, to be there for them and, yeah. and, and show that they care. Yep. Don, you and I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, you, 
it's, it's unfortunate that, that we, we don't see it like this on the federal level. Because we just want to buy votes. And the easiest way is just to buy votes and throw money at things. You, you know, there should be a program where entrepreneurs like me and you, um, through building skills and, and, and development, we are then, then the money's funded that way or whatever. There's got to be, there's got to be a, a, a reward for, for what we do. Um, you know, because like, honestly, I had to make a decision. I could go, my dream and my vision, I would go broke because if I don't stop somewhere, because literally you want to help everybody. It's like, it's like, the, like the kid that goes to the SPCA and wants to adopt every child, right? Or every, every dog, because uh, the dogs are crying and the dogs need a home. Like, you know, so yeah, there's got to be a different way. Definitely. Can you can, just, just dive into your vision a little bit? Because I think that what you just said there is interesting to me. Um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, although I might summarize it after I ask you a couple questions. Let's fast forward and it's three years from today. And, and we're looking back over the last three years. So just picture it's 2023 and you and I are talking again. In your vision, what has to have happened for you to be really happy with your progress? Um, I want to see my Indigenous employment rate go to 40 to 50%. Right now I'm at 25. Um, COVID took, took four of them from me. Uh, not, they had, their, their bands asked them to quarantine and they never came back. Um, so I'm at 25% right now. I, I'd love to be to 40, which is um, not just three or four. I want, to have, uh, I want to have at least 10 to 15 here. Um, and I want to be very influential in, in different communities. Um, you know, whether that's, I, I, I started a foundation called the True North Strong Foundation. And I really want to spend a lot of time with that, which focuses on mental health and addiction programs, support in Indigenous community. Um, you know, our suicide rate on some in, 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 our, in our First Nations communities is like five to ten times higher than, than normal society. So for me to have this as success, I want to have a 40 to 50 percent Indigenous employment rate. And um, I, want to, I, want to, I want to have donated or, or put several hundreds of thousands of dollars into different communities and helping people see that there's more out there and, and, and there's a new path and we're going to help end this stigma. Right. Um, I want to also have other industry other businesses in my industry start to employ. I'm the only one that takes it seriously. The day needs to end where it's only the responsibility of the end user oil company to give money back into communities. When meanwhile, there's billions of dollars being given to the rest of us and then sent to Houston or to wherever those, well, those other companies headquarters are at when it needs to be put back into our communities. So I want to blaze that trail. You know, I plan for it for this fall, but it's not going to happen. For, so it's going to happen in the spring. I want to start an annual, uh, our, indig our industry indigenous job fair. We'll get the different communities that have members in Edmonton because there's a ton of members in Edmonton from these communities work with the Métis First Nation of Alberta and bring in a whole bunch of uh, companies in our industry, oil and gas or whatever it is, and let's start that process. If we could walk away from that one day and, and 100, 100 Indigenous men or women get a job, that's super cool, right? 
Um, so that's, that's where I want to be in, in the next three years. In the next five years or in the next five years, I want to have my CEO of my company, uh, a First Nations individual that either is, that either, either is in school now or I can, I can put into school and have them go through, get their MBA or, or BCom, whatever it is, and have them sit in this corner office that I'm in now and be a figure stone of my business. That, that's a story that I can then go and tell. We have this fascination with making sports heroes our, our, our heroes. And, you know, if I can take someone like that, and then that can then be the hero to hundreds of, of, of little girls and little boys to go, wow, look at that, right? That's, that's yeah. inspiring. That should, that's the real hero, right? Yep, 100%. And I, I, I really think it needs to be more grassroots and more, you know, there's this, the, the comment is reconciliation. And, and I think it needs to be more culturally integration, not culturally integration where we're taking away culture from Aboriginal people, but we are totally accepting and encouraging them to be involved and to be proud and to, and to develop and, and, and to find a way through um, and having, you know, great lives the way they want to have them, and, but develop pride in themselves and still maintaining pride in their culture. Well, um, Don, let me ask you this. Do you know when you don't fit in? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Okay. So imagine that every day, everywhere you go. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing that struck me and you didn't say it with your, with your young uh, number, you know, one on mechanical aptitude. What was his name? Lewis? Bad Lewis. Chad? Yeah. Bad Lewis. So, I mean, I, Without knowing, I, I'm just curious how much of that looking down and can't look you in the eye is a lack of confidence or a cultural sign of respect. And so I, I, I somewhere in there, I think there is, you know, each culture has its own nuances that the, it, when you interact with people, you don't get that what you might be reading as uh, disengaged might be lack of confidence. It might be um, their cultural norm that, you you know, some cultures you have to look someone in the eye, other cultures, you can't look them in the eye because it's a sign of a challenge. And there's all these little nuances that I think are part of this, that, you know, when you meet anyone, and and in this case, a young Aboriginal kid who just is looking for a chance, how would people read that is like, you know, you, you see this, this young man, he can't look you in the eye and in an interview, how is he going to do? If, if someone on the other side of the interview isn't compassionate and looking to, I mean, you're different because you're looking to create an opportunity for that young man. But when that young man goes into a hundred other places, his body language, whether that was confidence or culture or respect is going to be perceived by the other interviewing person as, yeah, I'm not sure that that, that guy's a fit. hundred percent, hundred percent. So, you know, when I, when I started this vision, I, you know, I've learned a little bit along the way. And, and one of them is I can't um, fill a panicked gap in my employment with an indigenous person because they need that time and that attention. They need yeah. to know that, that you know, the, the, they come in, they're going to get the, the education, the training. Um, all my employees 
before I hire the next batch uh, and, and, and go down the next, uh, you know, indigenous employment guys I want to hire in, everyone here is going to take an Aboriginal awareness course. Because that, it's not the same as me just going out in the shop and having a quick chat and saying, hey guys, um, you know, I need, I need you to be aware. I need you to be patient. I need you to be kind. Let's influence and change lives. That's the coolest part. I want them all to sit down and actually take the full day in Aboriginal awareness course. And then, you know, we, 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 we bring the next guys in, next men or women in. And it's not just, get your boots on, get to work. We need to develop skills as well because some of them don't have that skill development. So well, I think it's, it's, it's both um, developing basic career skills, as you put it, you know, just mechanical aptitude, but it's also using that to help build their confidence so that they can be more successful and adaptive in interacting with non-Aboriginal you know, coworkers or employers or clients or whatever, and, and not, not trying to change. I don't, I think that, 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 that attitude needs to just be left in the 1960s. Yep. They should be, they should stand, stand, you know, with pride and with strength and, and find ways to be successful. And there's a balance, right? I think there's yep. a balance that I think everyone needs to reconcile um, with, you know, I want to go back to money and, um, you know, we talked about how the federal government, you know, pacifying their responsibility by throwing money at it that doesn't really accomplish anything. But I want to go into a little bit more nuanced piece because, I, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of energy companies and just large industrial facility companies having a, you know, doing their best to have a strategy of including um, their spending and their employment um, with an Aboriginal focus. But I, I, I had a personal experience uh, a little while ago where I was looking at forming a partnership with, um, with an Aboriginal group uh, in a joint venture. And my vision was that, sure, I, you know, this joint venture would have had an economic value uh, because obviously, if we had a, uh, if we were a First Nations specialty business, um, that it would give us some advantages commercially with some of our target clients. So that's just, I mean, you know, in the oil and gas space, there's a strategy there that, you know, that a lot of people take advantage of. What, 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 what struck me is my vision was I wanted that business to be what you're doing, which was as, as much as we possibly could to create it, not just as Aboriginally owned, but I wanted Aboriginal employment and I wanted to develop technicians from the communities in which we work. So if we were in Fort McMurray, as an example, I wanted to create employment opportunities to apprentice young men and women in that community to become leak repair technicians or hot tap technicians uh, bolting technicians to work on maintenance and turnarounds in those facilities and not just for their their bands to get money, but for them to gain skills and employment and confidence and, and purpose in, and, and find opportunity. Well, 
you know, as I was in my discussions, it turned into just a big economic negotiation about how much the band was going to get and specifically their business development arm, which is not bad. And what they do with the money is there's lots of good things that those prosperous uh, bands do, I'm sure. And I'm not involved in that. But the thing that struck me is I said, you know, how many young men and women are in your community that we could take on as apprentices? And they said to me, not very many, and it's not our priority. And yeah. that struck yeah. me as that struck. It was even at that level where they were trying to take advantage of the appropriate, you know, uh, industry trend of of sharing funding and sharing spending. At the grassroots, it was still a lot of economics and not a lot about people development and people care. Um, in terms of the, the way that they were looking at it, or at least how I felt about it. And I think in the way that companies work through these things with Aboriginal ownership, um, and I think it's totally appropriate, and I want to see that trend grow and grow and grow, and the percentage of spend, in, uh, particularly on treaty lands, should continue to grow. But I think it's flawed if we're not developing the people so that they can be self-sustaining as individuals, you know, so I think there's a difference. There's a difference between a self-sustaining community and individuals. I mean, cause you know, if you're in a community and I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what community, the community of Edmonton, if, if there's a lot of pride in Edmonton, that doesn't necessarily translate down to every individual is happy and healthy and, 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 and feel like they are valuable. And I think the same thing can be true in the economic strategies around bans and treaties and, and, and oil company economics that how do you, how do you make an impact on the individual that isn't about just giving them a check? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I, there are uh, a couple of communities that, um, don't have, let's just say their heads, their heads on straight. And they're looking strictly at how can I take the natural resources that we have and how can I and a few of us live the best life and let's just keep the money flowing and not the opportunity. But there's also a lot of communities, their number one goal and dream is to create opportunity and to get their young men and women employed because they know what that means. Those are the communities that I like to work with and I like to seek out and they're very easy to identify as you just say because of what they're passionate about. Um, you know there's a lot of is there an advantage for, for True North being the only Indigenous owned company in Canada? 100%. Would um, would I be a good human being if I didn't take on the belief and the goals that I had? I don't think I would be a good human being. I, I'm going to take the advantage that I have and the edge, and I am going to do something fantastic with it. Essentially, I, I, I want to make, without True North being a, a not-for-profit, that's essentially what we're going to be. I don't, you know, if... I'm, you know, a little bit inside. I'm, I'm the fifth highest paid guy here in this company. Um, and that's for a reason because I, I want to spread everything around. I want to make sure that we have, um, I'm, I'm not, like I said at the beginning, I don't want to make the most money. I don't want to sell the most valves. I want to influence, influence the most lives. And I, I, th I think it's criminal for some of these companies to, to come in 
do a quick JV because they know that's going to put money in their pocket and nothing goes back through employment or community impact. I think it's criminal. Well, uh, we'll, we'll leave the interpretation of, of the criminality to others, but you know, there's always, there, there's always investigations or, and suggestions of, of uh, inappropriateness and corruption. I, I definitely think it's immoral and I don't yeah. think it's in the, I don't think it's in the best interest of the people uh, that they represent. And, uh, and I don't, and ultimately I think a more integrated approach where you are focused, certainly you need the economics to create the programs. The programs need to be about creating opportunity, uh, building individuals up because that's, what's going to be the foundation of any community. When the oil runs out, or, uh, or the amount of economic opportunity from the oil or the electricity or whatever natural resource, the lumber or whatever is being, um, whatever natural resources that are being uh, harvested, yep. um, either runs out or hits a plateau. How do you diversify that community so that you have just strength with developing not just band controlled um, uh, economics, but creating dozens of entrepreneurs within that group that they create a, a, a business community that helps the entire uh, people community thrive in many other areas. There's nothing to say that you can't use that money uh, and create those opportunities to diversify and create other entrepreneurial businesses that have a much wider view of the world than uh, what, what they're doing right on that territory, you know, creating, creating uh, other, other enterprises, you know, in, in, from an entrepreneurial standpoint in anything from food to transportation to IT to software to, I think there's a huge opportunity, uh, but it needs to start by building people up. Nope. I mean, a cool, a cool success story would be if one day Chad Lewis is, is not just learning mechanical aptitude, but he's starting to learn business acumen. He's, develop becoming a supervisor he's becoming a leader in your organization that would be a story that would be fun to follow oh yeah because you know even if you look at it um the reason why a lot of young men and women leave their communities is just to seek employment because there's not a lot of there's there's no economy on right exactly that's what i mean when i say when i meant when i talked about creating entrepreneurial opportunities what's the economy in their where they live well the other is none yeah exactly if they could then create an economy and stay where they, where they where they feel like they fit in and they have the most confidence and they have the most success and they can help make their individual communities better take care of their elders take care of each other that's awesome right no I, it's it's you know, I, I, I definitely appreciate you letting me come on and talk about this because it's something I'm extremely passionate about. And I don't think that enough of us are aware, enough of us pay attention to. You know, it, it's finding something you believe in. You know, I believe in this and, and you might believe in something else. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I really wish every man, if I could give somebody a gift, I would want every human being to be able to, to, to stand around and see what the reaction and the attendance is at their own funeral. Yep. Is there 20 people there that are there because they're your family and half of them hate you? Or are there hundreds there that are, are, are crying because there's a void in their heart because you did something exceptional and you touched them in a way that, that they know 
nobody else could ever do. And, 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 you know, that would change the way you lived your life. Right. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. You know, I, I don't know if I've, I think I've maybe shared this with you, but I, you know, in, I think having purpose is, is bigger than your what, right? So, you know, you happen to be in the valve business, but I don't think that's the real reason why people should do business with you. It's because you have a why and that why is compelling and the what could be anything, but it just happens that you're awesome at valves and you've built a team of people who are great with valves. And I think that all of your clients and your, the audience should sort of should work with you on valves because you're more than a valve business, not because you are a valve business. Uh, for me, I read a book many, many years ago um, when I was young in my career and it talked about, you know, the law of 250. And, and it says, you know, most people, you know, if you, if you had to sit down for an hour and think about it, you probably know about 250 people. Um, and there's probably about 250 people that you would consider uh, between a husband and a wife. If, uh, when, you're, when you're trying to put together uh, an invite to a, to a wedding, there's about 250 people that could be on the list. And there's about 250 people who will show up at your funeral. Um, from an impact standpoint, for me, um, my passion is about my people and about, and about the companies that I can help with the, all the things I want to do. And, uh, you know, my, my own life purpose uh, and, and my 25-year purpose specifically, I, I remember it by saying with, an, with a simple number and it's 654. And, you know, the six represents uh, my wife, my four children, and my mom. And I want to just make sure that I provide for them and give them safety and security and things in life that, uh, that uh, I, I might not have had, you know, as I was growing up, just to give them a better life. Um, not necessarily glamorous, just safe and secure and, and confidence and opportunity. But the five, four is, is actually five to the power of four. And I want to I want to grow my businesses so that I can impact 5,000 employees and their fa and 5,000 families um, uh, over the next 25 years and cr create opportunity for, you know, for where they have pride, where they have a place that they feel like it's home, that they have security and, you know, um, and I don't do it out of any vanity of how many are going to show up at my funeral, but, you know, I often have um, employees and their spouses come up to me um, at Christmas parties or at gatherings and, and say, thank you. And I'm like, thank you for what? Well, thank you for that opportunity. We need at that job. You know, this is great. You're, you're, you're having this Christmas party for our kids or this. And, and I'm just doing it because it's who I am. Um, and it's what I believe in and it's not out of anything, anything other than I just want it to be a great place to be. And I want to create great opportunity. And it hurts me, you know, COVID, um, hurt me, not, not, not because of the financial impact. It hurt me that I had to make choices around how to, what I could do with my, for my people to protect them it was a lot of tough things that, you know, everyone had to make decisions. I mean, it's the, the, the financial pain of this is, will be felt for a long time, but I think the, the human impact pain is, is what we got to pay attention to mitigating. And your why is, is incredible. 
And I think it's more incredible because for most of your life, you were on the opposite side of that and really didn't have a connection with it. And, uh, and I think it's a story of what can happen if someone makes a connection. You happen to make a personal connection that goes, well, these are my people. Um, and, and I'm sure that part of it has to do with your own sense of reconciliation and developing pride in a piece of you you never knew about. But imagine if, if our leaders around the country in business and in government and in institutions all decided to make a connection so they could change their perspective and change the way that we are approaching um, a, a much more uh, harmonious society where we're not seeing these negotiations and land disputes and rail disputes and all of these things as adversarial, but we are finding a way to create a connection that it is in everyone's best interest that we do right. Oh, you know, but Don, sometimes people just ask for way more than we're able to give. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it's, but again, it's assuming that it's, uh, you're asking to take something that, you know, that is yours to begin with. I had to throw that reference in there from Mr. No, no I get it. I mean, I, well, but those are the, but those are people who are perceiving it from a money perspective and from a, and a, from an entitlement perspective of, well, I'm entitled to this and you want me to give you 10%. I only want to give you 2%. Yeah. Well, no, you're, you're, you know, exactly. The, the problem is we have too many people who are unwilling to make the connection because it opens up maybe some embarrassment. i I'm embarrassed to tell you the story about the time I turned right because you can perceive well, me as a stereotype, a racist, whatever you want. Well, but I, I don't, I don't think you should be embarrassed. Well, no, I think, I'm not, I'm not. so here's, here's, here's why, right? I think the person you were when you did that, that person should be embarrassed, right? Your, your, your past self should be embarrassed. Your present self is a different person because you've made a change and you've recognized something and your present person has nothing to be embarrassed about because you're not that person anymore. And that's the point. True. Yep. Right. And your future self is even, is probably going to even look back on your present self and go, I didn't do enough then. Cause look at who I am now. Look at what I'm doing five years from now. And as you, as you push towards reaching your vision, we're always going to look back on our, on our, our past selves and go that, you know, that that's not me today. And so I don't think we ever, you know, I think we can inwardly feel empathy for who we were, but who we are today. Um, I don't think you, you need to have any regrets because it's a journey, right? My, uh, on an, on a, I had another guest uh, and a friend of mine on a podcast of, about a couple of months ago, and he released a book called personality isn't permanent. He's a friend of mine, Dr. Benjamin Hardy. And he talked about the, uh, this whole idea of past self, present self, future self. And, you know, you got to live in your present self. You can learn from, learn from your past self um, and you should be planning for your future self. And, and if you want to create that future self, then you need to start to, you know, enact who that person needs to be today. And it naturally happens with intention. And I, so I think, I think your future self of having um, having a First Nations CEO, having a 
a, a, an organization that has 50% or more uh, Aboriginal employment where you're developing people and creating opportunities for them, I'm certain it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's um, you, you kind of need to get that mentality that every day you wake up and you chase the better you, right? You chase, yep. you tr you're, you're trying to trace, chase down the better you. And one day you're going to wake up 15 years down the road. And you're going to be like, yeah, I think I finally, you know, I, I found that, that version I envisioned 15 years ago, but now let's go chase the best, the better you, right? You know, that's, that's what I like. Well, I mean, I, I just think this is a really, your story is a really interesting story where you've got this um, thought you were a Ukrainian and you were actually a First Nations man and you were a police officer who was on on the opposite side of that. And now you're an entrepreneur who has a different vision. I mean, we're talking about several different people here in one life, right? Well, I, I feel like I've changed a lot. You know, it's, uh, it's not too long ago when I was, you know, dealing with some things in the police that, um, you know, I, I, I took a leave of absence before I started out of the company and I didn't even have $8 to pay for gas. I had to call my dad and say, you know, I got no, I got, and I was 39 years, uh, 29 years old. Yeah. I, I literally had no money for gas. And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, no, I, 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 I'm happy the way that, that life's going. I'm, I'm happier with the way life's going to go and, and, you know, the things that I'm able to do because I feel like finally I found my path. Right. Mm -hmm. Hey, at some point we should talk about, uh, uh true North strong foundation um, and its focus. Um, I have a friend in uh, Phoenix, Joe Polish, who, who has a, he, uh, he's an entrepreneur and he runs an entrepreneurial organization, but he has another foundation that is about, it's called, uh, it's called genius recovery and it's focused on helping people deal with addiction recovery. And uh, it's primary focused obviously in, uh, in the U S but uh, I I've been, wanting to talk to Joe about doing something in Canada. And I think it would be interesting if we did something in partnership with him, uh, with, with what you're doing as I have, uh, I have, uh, a passion for, uh, for helping people with addiction as well. Cause I've, I've struggled and had experiences in my life in that area, um, that have, uh, that have had negative consequences and, um, and I think a lot of people have, and I think it's something that a lot of people need a different approach on as well. And uh, it's certainly, it's certainly a major part of the, uh, of the Aboriginal challenge and that, that they face with, with, uh, with their culture and how they, how they deal with it and how people treat them as a result. And, uh, but I think, I don't, I think it's true for a lot of people that there's a lot of people who have a, um, you know, my friend, Joe, he says that all addictions, are actually a solution. Um, uh, the, 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 but it's a solution to pain. People have pain and they, then they end up turning to drugs and alcohol because the drugs and alcohol are the short-term solution to the long-term pain that they have. And, um, and I think that that's true of, of everyone who goes through that and solving the pain is, is, is what often what helps solve the, uh, the addiction. Well, one of the, uh, one of the, Funniest dads of the 1990s and, and today, Homer Simpson said, alcohol, the cause and solution to all life's problems. <laughs> you know, but no, you, Can, you know. 
how uh, how do people talk to you about uh, True North? Like, what, how do they reach you? Well, uh, obviously, website truenorthmods.ca. Um, you know, I'm 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 pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, you know, we're we're located just. Uh, I got five acres here, right by the LRT station uh, off Wagner Road and 75th. Doors always open um, for anybody. Even that's if in uh, for anyone for anyone that's in Edmonton, Alberta. For all the listeners, it's uh, the podcast will go out uh, far and wide. So, uh, yeah. we uh, don't. If you're planning on visiting, don't come between uh, November and uh, April. <laughs> don't come to Edmonton. You mean not your business? <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, we, um, and if there's anybody out there, you know, who's, who's passionate about what I've said today and has any ideas or any feedback, um, the, this movement is only going to happen with a bunch of us in the private sector hopping on board and, and making a change. And, you know, yeah, I get mad when I see billions funneled to other countries when we have our own people that need help and, and even running water, but this is a private sector problem uh, that, that we can then solve together. Right. I think you're a hundred percent right. I think it needs to be a private sector businesses who are making a decision that they're doing this, uh, not just for economic benefit with contractual negotiations, but doing it because it's the right thing to do. Hundred percent. You, you're the you're the first person I've talked to who's doing it because it's the right thing to do and you've got a why and a passion for it. And that's why I wanted to have you uh, on our show so we could get this message out and get your vision out. Cause I think it's a really important thing for people to hear. No, well, Donnie, I can't thank you enough for letting me do this. Um, it's, it's a great way to end the week. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm very excited for the future and, and uh, yeah, thank you, sir. I, I can't thank you enough. My pleasure, man. I'll see you at our next meeting and yeah. I'll, uh, I'll get in touch and I'll come by and check out your, uh, your new beautiful facility and uh, we'll have a chat about some other things. Awesome. Okay. Can't wait to see you, buddy. Thanks again for joining the show, my friend. And there you have it. We truly do hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Ken and True North, you can visit them anytime at truenorthmods.com and you can find Don and Innovator at innovator.ca. Don't forget to leave a like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. It truly does help out the show a lot. So with all that said, we can't wait to see you next time on the Industrial Innovators Podcast.